Good morning, everyone. Uh, Daniel gave me a very generous introduction earlier, uh, but I'm Caleb. Um, Becca and I, my wife, have been members at Kindred for a little over a year now and been just very excited to be here with you all and to have a chance uh, to dive into God's Word together. Before we begin, would you please pray with me? Dear Lord God, we thank you for gathering your church here this morning. We thank you for the wonderful worship led by Candace and the band and for the chance to hear how your spirit might speak into our lives this week. In the coming moments, if anything I say by your spirit is useful, life-giving, and true, I pray that it would find root in the hearts of your people and you would keep it in the forefront of their minds as they leave this place. But if anything that I say misses the mark, if anything is not true to you or to your character, I ask that you would just cover everybody's ears and that it would fall harmlessly to the floor. We ask all of this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to begin this morning by telling you guys about a story, a story about a time when I was, um, I was betrayed, I was tricked, taken advantage of by a, by a car rental salesman. Um, Beck and I were on a weekend trip to Seattle to go to a friend's wedding a few years ago, and after we landed, I went to the Hertz desk to check out our humble economy sedan, um, and as I was checking out, the guy at the desk who introduced himself to me as Jeff, he noticed that I had a Chicago Bears logo on my shirt, and so he asked me, oh, are you from Chicago? I said, no, my family's from there, grew up a fan. We get to talking. Turns out he grew up in the same street that I did. He briefly went to the same high school as my dad. Every landmark that I threw out, he was just like, oh, I love that place. That's my favorite place. Um, most importantly, he also vastly preferred Giordano's deep dish pizza to Gino's East deep dish pizza, which in my opinion is the mark of a true Chicagoan. So at this point, I am just thinking to myself, Jeff's a, just a great guy. You know, a lot of people just are here to clock in and clock out, but he's willing to take the time to make a connection with me. What a breath of, what a breath of fresh air. And then he says, super casually, looks like you got some friends with you. The sedan might be kind of cramped. Would you like to switch to the crossover? It's got a lot more leg room. Um, something you need to know about me, I can be a very naive traveler. I thought these were all free upgrades, that it was just like my lucky day. And so I say, yeah, sounds great. Long story short, by the end of our interaction, Jeff has hooked me up with a luxury sound system, a deluxe insurance package, and like these fancy essential oil air fresheners or something. Um, when he finally rings me up, he says, all right, that'll be 1837. And I just go, um, what? I, something must be wrong. My reservation was for like $300. And Jeff just says, deadpan, all the glimmer gone out of his eyes. Yeah, that was for the economy sedan. Now you're driving a luxury SUV with TV screens and heated seats. And just like that, my new best buddy Jeff, he just, he just turned right back into the salesman. Um, and as I, I sheepishly told him, like, no, I, I, don't, I don't want any of that, I was thinking to myself, oh my goodness, you've been a salesman this whole time. Are you even from Chicago? Have you even had Giordano's deep dish pizza? You could be a thin crust guy, for all I know. Uh, and you know, Jeff was just doing his job. Um, I don't blame him. It was jarring, though, to suddenly realize I had just completely misread that interaction. And the reason I tell you that story is because I think that's how some people can start to feel when the church starts talking about finances. We have all of these wonderful sermon series about God's love and the good news of the gospel, and then one Sunday you walk in, there's something called a generosity campaign going on. The scripture readings start saying things like you can't serve God and wealth and you might think to yourself, especially if you've been hurt by the church in the past, is my best buddy just turned right back into the salesman? Is that what they've been this whole time? 
I think that this is an understandable reaction. I've had it myself before in the past. I want to name it out loud. But part of what I'm hoping we are going to discover together this morning as we dive into the scripture readings is that this is a really unfortunate misunderstanding. In the teachings of the Bible in Jesus Christ, the warm and the fuzzy good news is not, it's not a bait and switch. It's not an opener before Jesus pivots to the collection plate. Instead, the Bible's teaching on money and finances are themselves good news, and they are designed for our benefit and for our flourishing. Now, I have two disclaimers that I want to get out there before getting into the meat of the matter. First, as Daniel alluded to um, at the beginning of this series last week, this is one of those sermon series that's going to mean different things for different people. Particularly if you are new to Kindred or you are still figuring out what role the church in general is going to play in your life, then, you know, I hope that you listen really closely, but please do not feel pressured to be breaking out your pocketbook or something. Um, I don't... I don't even know what a pocketbook is. I'm just realizing. Um, Whip out your Venmo or whatever. We are just glad that you're here. We sincerely want to be a safe and supportive place for you to discern what your relationship with God looks like. Um, If you are a member of Kindred or if you have decided that the church is doing God's work in the world and you want to be a part of that work, then I do hope that you will consider how Jesus' teachings might be encouraging you to view even the topic of money through the lens of discipleship and the kingdom of God. That's the first disclaimer. Second disclaimer is um, that I'm not being paid to say any of this. Uh, I am literally not a salesman. I'm not on staff here. I'm just an excited member of Kindred, like many of y'all, who Daniel occasionally has to preach on fun topics like animal sacrifice and personal finance. Um, I am, of course, kidding on all fronts. The staff, everyone here at Kindred has known nothing but your best interest at heart, and I am, of course, more than overjoyed to preach uh, whenever I have the chance. But I did just want to let you know on the front end that I have honestly and genuinely struggled with this topic myself and have become convinced that there is really good news for us here. So let's jump right into the text for this morning. It comes from Jesus' longest set of teachings called the Sermon on the Mount. It's a long sermon, the type of sermon that runs into the lunch hour and gets people restless. About midway through this sermon, Jesus says, you cannot serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and wealth. And the word for wealth here is not the ordinary term for money or riches. It only appears a couple places in the entire New Testament. The word is mammonos, it's mammon. You cannot serve God and mammon. And I wonder, does that word, like do you all have any associations with that word? Uh, it probably sounds more churchy or loaded or ominous somehow. It's related to the Greek god Plutos, the, god of, the Greek god for money. It might be the name of an ancient Syrian deity for riches. In other words, mammon is wealth personified. This is wealth imagined as a deity. What Jesus is doing here is he's putting forward a sort of choose this day whom you will serve kind of scenario. The God who Jesus is proclaiming on the one hand and mammon, the God of wealth, on the other hand. Now, spoiler alert, I'm about to suggest that serving God rather than money as a God is going to be a more reliable path to a flourishing and happy life. Surprise, surprise. But I want to be clear, what I am not saying is that having all that you need, reliable shelter, food, transportation, even some discretionary income and leisure time, I'm not saying that that is not important. Well, I do think that the adage, money won't make you happy, is true in a general sense. It is also often people that have plenty of money that are fond of saying that. And it's important that we work towards a community and a society where everybody has the basic means to live a secure life. And I firmly believe that anybody that takes the overall message of the Bible seriously will be the first to advocate for the physical and material needs of everyone 
especially the poor and those who are struggling financially. And we'll also be the first to fight against the incredible wealth inequality that's so obvious in our own time, in our own society and culture. But I think that Jesus is getting at something slightly different here by saying you cannot serve both God and mammon. By personifying wealth, Jesus is putting the conversation into a different register. Selecting a God to serve is about more than everyday necessities. It's about deciding um, what will be the basic motivation behind your actions and your decisions. Where are you going to derive your ultimate sense of meaning and purpose? Ultimately, it's about who you trust and who you think is in charge and most, incapable, most capable of protecting you and helping you. If this is a choice, and it's a very important one at that, it would be irresponsible not to consider both options, right? So we're going to give Mammon a, a fair shot. Uh, this right here is a painting of Mammon from the 1800s. Uh, this guy seems powerful, capable, if not generous, um, and who knows, maybe he is in charge. After all, it sure seems, if we take a quick look out at our culture and our society, that money rules. Um, recent studies have shown that more and more graduates from top colleges are going into areas like finance and banking with the expressed purpose and motivation of just earning as much income as they can and living the life that they want. So this question that Jesus is putting before us is a live one, and it's one that people are navigating each and every day, and it's not immediately obvious from the outset what the right, what the prudent choice really is. Um, I think that the most obvious reason people will orient their, their lives around money, earning it, keeping it, uh, growing it, is because they think that it will bring them security and happiness. And um, that's totally understandable, right? I see the commercials with rich people driving Teslas through Italy. Uh, it, looks, it looks awesome. Um, it looks great. But the actual research on money and happiness is interesting and complicated. Um, a lot of times you'll hear that money doesn't make you happy beyond $75,000 of annual income. That's a number that's thrown out a lot. Beyond that, happiness levels sort of level off. It's not totally true, given what I was able to find um, in the last week or so. New studies do seem to suggest that there is a linear increase in general happiness as income increases even far beyond $75,000 per year. But there is a major, major catch. Has anybody ever heard of the hedonic treadmill before? Um, it is a well-established concept in psychology. It refers to the repeatedly observed tendency in human beings to quickly return to a relatively stable level of happiness despite major positive or negative events in their lives. So getting a giant raise at work and going from earning $50,000 to $100,000 a year or 200 to 400, 1 million to 2 million, it doesn't matter. It will make you happy for a time, but after a while, not even that long actually, you'll fall back down to previous levels of daily satisfaction. So what that means is that in order for money to keep making you happy, you constantly need more and more and more of it. One study found that in order for the happiness effect of money to continue after a certain level, you have to double your assets every year. Or else subjects tended to fall right back down the hedonic treadmill. They went back to the baseline happiness that they had before. For money to keep making you happy, you have to earn and earn and earn. Why do the hosts of Shark Tank still do Shark Tank? Do you guys know that reality TV show I'm talking about where like these, these billionaires like sit around looking for the next big investment by like squeezing these poor small business owners for every half percentage of equity? It's a guilty pleasure of mine. Um, but why do they still do that? Why, why not just like give them the money or travel the world and drink mimosas or something? It's because you got to grow. You got to grow. You got to double it every year. Otherwise, you fall right back down the hedonic treadmill with everybody else. And here's the thing, Mammon's world is a zero-sum game. There's only so much stuff. 
money, cars, yachts out there. Stuff that you get is stuff that I don't get. A raise that my coworker receives is one that I don't receive. Money the government takes out of my po- takes for social welfare programs is tax money that should have stayed in my pocket. We are all in a no holds bar arms race trying to beat that hedonic treadmill. And to do that, my attention's got to be laser focused. And guys, the Bible knows this. The Bible is very, very skeptical of money, of mammon's ability to bring long-term satisfaction and happiness. 1 Timothy 6 famously describes uh, the love of money as the root of all evil, but I think that what gets missed is that in the context of this verse, it's, it's very clear that those who doggedly pursue wealth above all else, they not only harm others, but they are also harmed themselves. Paul describes, uh, describes riches as a snare, as a craving. And in this really strange and difficult portion of the Greek, um, I'm not very good at Greek yet, but I'm learning, he says that those who go down this path, it's something like, they stab themselves over and over with anguish. When you pick a God to serve, you, you start to be remade into that God's image. And I think that we hope that if we choose wealth, if we decide to serve mammon to orient our lives around winning this zero-sum game and ending with the highest number, we hope that maybe we'll become something along the lines of this guy, secure, happy, and powerful. But the Bible says that that is a lie. What will actually happen is we'll be made, we will be remade into the image of something more like this, which is another painting of Mammon. This one from the 17th. Whoa, that is scarier on the big screen. Um, anyway, we'll become insecure and panicky. The hedonic treadmill will drag us back down over and over and over again. We're going to need more and more until we can no longer think of anybody but ourselves. So that's that's a bleak picture. Um, if mammon, maybe mammon, not the answer, not the God we want to serve, but does, does Jesus have like a positive case to make for us? You know, beyond mammon being this crazy sort of demon-y looking thing, why is God, why is the God of Jesus a better way? And we have to keep reading. I'm in verse 25. It says, therefore I say to you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the sky. They don't sow seed. They don't harvest grain. They don't gather crops into barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Aren't you worth much more than they? To be, um, to be really honest with y'all, I have not always liked these verses. At times I've just thought that Jesus' metaphors, they just weren't all that great this time around. Birds don't have to pay for childcare, Jesus. Uh, the chicks just sit there in the nest until their parents come back with worms. Free worms, by the way. Um, but I'm really glad that this was the scripture reading for this week because it forced me to take a longer look, a deeper look. I am a grammar nerd, a Bible and language nerd. uh, So we're gonna have a very brief Greek grammar lesson. Um, I swear it's important. Just stick with me here. Uh, The words for look and consider, as in look at the birds of the air and consider the lilies of the field, they are not the normal words for look and consider, which would be blepo and menthano, if you're interested. Um, Now, each of these words has what's called an emphatic prefix, attached to it. An extra syllable has been added to each of them. So we have emblepo and katamanthano. Uh, and these emphatic prefixes, they, they intensify the meaning of the word. They sort of raise it to another level of force. So Jesus is saying something closer to contemplate the birds of the air, meditate upon the lilies of the field. Um, I, had, I had an Old Testament professor once who liked to throw around the phrase, the really real, when talking about certain portions of the Bible. 
Um, at certain moments in the Bible, God seems to, to break into our world to kind of roll back the curtains of reality and to reveal to somebody, a, a prophet, a community, a poor young Jewish woman, reveal to them the really real. When the prophet Ezekiel is weeping in, in exile in Babylon, having been ripped away from Jerusalem and everything that is, he has ever known, and he is wondering if the God that he has served his whole life has been defeated by the forces of empire, God shows Ezekiel the really real an amazing vision of God's glory and power that despite appearances is still at work behind all of the events of history. When the risen Jesus appears to his disciples while they are mourning the death of their beloved rabbi around the dinner table, he is unveiling to them the really real. Death, for so long a final and definitive end, has now been defeated. And I think that with this talk of birds of the air and lilies of the field, Jesus is not making some sort of casual throwaway illustration. Instead, I think he's giving us a glimpse of the really real. He is asking us to imagine, to contemplate, and to meditate upon an alternative world that looks very different from the one that we spend most of our time in. These are metaphors of nature and the animal kingdom, and in this context, they seem to depict a system just totally different from the zero-sum game that we can sometimes feel trapped within. Here, there is, there's not a fixed number of dollars that have to be taken out of someone else's pocket in order to be put into my pocket. Jesus is rejecting that, that entire paradigm, here, the God of gifts who turns water into wine, who feeds 5,000 people with five loaves of bread, is more than willing and more than able to meet the needs of his beloved children, just like God provides for the lilies and the birds of the air. And this is, as Jesus makes clear in verse 33, it's a glimpse of the kingdom of God, which we Christians believe is not fully realized, but has begun to break in even here and now. Surprisingly, this section from the Sermon on the Mount that's been all about wealth, um, stretching back even further in the verses, it ends with a statement about worry. So do not worry about tomorrow, verse 34 says. I, I, at least I might think that when it comes to money, the operative vice would be greed that we have to watch out for, uh, but God says that it's money. Now, um, a certain amount of concern for the future is not going to go away, right? Rent is due on the first, the car sounds funny, and daycare is very expensive, if you didn't know. Um, these are things that we inevitably have to repair for and pay attention to, but the deeper worry, I think, that we are being warned against is the worry that, you know what, I think it is actually Mammon who's in charge here, and I'm afraid that I should have been playing by his rules this entire time. But having looked, or better yet, having contemplated, having meditated upon the really real, Jesus is reminding us that this worry is an illusion. It's a powerful illusion, but it's an illusion all the same. There is an alternate, higher reality here, depicted here in terms of a carefree, naturalistic world, a world where God provides lavishly and freely and where anxiety is not present. We have not been abandoned to a brutal world where those with money and power rule and the rest of us just scrape to survive. The kingdom of God, though not fully realized, has begun to break in. The God of generosity and abundance is the one who is actually in charge. This God loves us and looks out for us. And this is the really real. I've, um, I've recently gotten super into monthly budgets. I've never been a big budgeter before, but there is, I, Daniel mentioned this last week, there is something about having a baby on the way that makes you go, all right, time to buckle down, make sure we know where every single dollar is going. Um, Beck and I use a software called YNAB, which stands for You Need a Budget. Highly recommended, by the way, if you're looking. Um, as your paychecks come in, you assign each dollar to a job, some to buying groceries, some to your long-term savings account. We have, a, we have a section of the app that is simply entitled Giving which contains tabs allocating some money to a couple charities that we support and one that includes our monthly gift to Kindred. 
Um, now, if I thought that this guy ruled the world, and occasionally, sometimes I'm afraid he does. We all struggle it with different things at different times. But if I start to think that the point of all of this is to get what's mine, to finish with the biggest number, the coolest stuff, and the, and the best vacations, then it is hard not to resent this little section of the budget. Because under Mammon's value system, it's almost worse than useless. I could, I could put that money in the entertainment fund. Uh, my personal favorite, the eating out tab. I could, I could throw it in a retirement account. It'd be worth so much more 35 years from now. Compound interest is, is incredible. Um, if this is where my head is at, I, I start to resent this section of the budget. Maybe even hate it in the most extreme circumstances. Because the God of money and the God of Jesus Christ, they give different and mutually exclusive instructions to their servants. I start to resent it because you cannot serve both God and money. But at my best, when God has got control of my thoughts, and I remember that this guy is a fraud, um, then when I set up the giving tab in the budget, I get like this monthly jolt of hope and happiness. And this is 100% true because it reminds me that, that I don't believe mammon rules this world. I don't believe, ultimately, that we're stuck in a zero-sum game where you have to get yours while the getting is good. Because I've glimpsed the kingdom. I've seen the world of abundance and beauty where the God of gifts provides all good things to his beloved children just like he does to the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. I've seen it in God's word and the scriptures and I've, and I've seen it in the church. I've seen it in a community like this one, a community that is determined to show the world an alternative path to spread the good news of God's love and to serve all of God's children. And I look forward to the day when Christ returns in final victory and the kingdom of God is fully realized. And when I'm able to grasp these truths, uh, then the giving tab, it becomes the reason for all of the other ones. It represents what gives life meaning and purpose. And it's like this act of rebellion against the rule of money in our world that seems so absolute but is ultimately a sham. So, so friends, when, when the Bible talks about money, when God, and even at its best when the church asks you to think about how your finances might be a part of discipleship, this is not, in my, in my humble opinion, a smooth-talking car salesman trying to get you to spring for heated seats in the middle of the summer. This is not a bait-and-switch because God is not trying to sell you something. God is trying to give you something. And he's trying to give you nothing less than freedom from the rule of a false God, a false God who does not have your best interest at heart, who will betray you at a moment's notice, and whose reign is temporary. God is trying to give you hope in a world of abundance and plenty, and he's trying to give you a chance to participate in bringing that world about here and now. Would you all please pray with me? Dear Lord God, often, Lord, when, when we look out at our world, it, it can be hard to tell who's in charge here. Forces of violence and power and money, they seem so pervasive and have such influence. God, I ask that you would show us the really real. Remind us that the generous God of gifts really does call the shots. This life is not a zero-sum game. The God who showers blessings upon even the birds and the, and the flowers in the field, this God knows us, this God loves us, and this God will provide for us. We ask all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.